What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared. I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Austin. Yo, what up? And joining us locally in Los Angeles, California, is Alec. What's up, Alec? Hey, everyone. Nice to be here. Yeah, man. Hear that full voice that comes with the microphones here in L.A.? It's yeah. really, really nice having you, Gotta man. Gotta come here for the microphones. That's right. <laughs> anyway, today we're talking about the 2006 movie Children of Men, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, starring Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, and Chiwetel Ejiofor. As always, let's go around and get some first impressions. What was it like watching this movie the first time you saw it? And what was it like revisiting it for this podcast? Let's start with Austin. I actually only saw this film entirely for the first time uh, previously. Well, I guess it would have been last year. And and it was like when Roma was out and getting all the love. And so I wanted Mm. to see other uh, Quaron films. Um, I'd seen clips before. You know, I'd seen a lot of video essays on the cinematography. You know, everyone talks about the shot, the rotating shot in the car, the single long, long take. And, um, and so, uh, and I'd known a little bit about the film just because there's some philosophical, like heavy philosophical themes that people like to explore. But, um, but I'd, I'd only recently watched it. So I've seen it twice now in the matter or in like, you know, six months or something like that. And, um, here's the thing, like, it's a good film. It, it is, a, it, it is it's maybe even a great film, but I feel like the amount of love it gets puts it on a pedestal that is really hard to live up to, you know? Mm. And that's. That's always a that's a bummer for me because I think in a vacuum, this film might be, and I know people use this term quite loosely, but it might be a masterpiece. But I was told it was a masterpiece for so long and that when I watch it now, I'm like, it's it's really good. It's really good, but there's something about it. Maybe it's just Charlie Hunnam that I can't stand in this film. <laughs> But expectations are a bitch, man. Uh, yeah. And, and so it's it's tough. It's tough. But again, like I said, in a vacuum, which I, I can't even perceive the film in that space, but I can speculate. It might be a fantastic masterpiece, landmark piece of cinema. Um, but with that said, I still think the philosophical themes are really rich. I think it's extremely inventive. Um, I think the camera work is fantastic. Um you know, shout out to Chivo as well for that. So I think I think there's a lot to talk about um, with this film, which is always for me exciting. Absolutely, Alec. What about you, man? I saw this film a long, long time ago, and I think I knew it in was... theaters or not. No, I I think probably not. But I knew it was like a movie that was like smart, and intelligent. I don't think I really liked it. I didn't dislike it, but I was just like, ah, oh, whatever. But re- so watch rewatching, I had very low expectations. And I fucking loved it. Yeah. I think there was so much stuff that I didn't pick up at the time. Maybe I was in high school or college or something like that. Um, I think now working for Wisecrack, I've since learned a lot about cinematography and like what a long tracking shot is and stuff like that. And being like, oh, holy shit, this is like fucking awesome. So, yeah, I think it's definitely one of the the best movies. I mean, I was just on an airplane. I watched Glass and Austin Powers. (laughs) So uh, also, I think like the juxtaposition, I was like, oh, right. Yeah, this is what a good movie is. Hey, Austin Powers is awesome. I fell asleep in the middle of it. I also didn't really sleep that night. So who knows? But uh, I don't know, man. But yeah, A++. Very cool. First of all, I want to apologize. I'm kind of getting over a cold. So if I sound gross, I apologize. So I saw this movie in theaters in 2006, and I I think maybe I was just in my hipster era because I didn't really like it that much. 
and I have not seen it since until yesterday. And yesterday I was totally blown away and I felt like all those criticisms I had against it that the long shots are pure novelty and they don't really um, function the story or the aesthetic in any way except just braggadociously creating something that's really hard to pull off. I completely rescind that opinion. I think that the movie functions on an incredible level. I think the movie has some of the best production design of any movie ever. You know, there's movies that have great production design, but the movie's horrible, like Gangs of New York, which I can still watch because the production design is so good. But this movie has the full package. Production design elevates it to a whole nother level, but the the primary narrative also works in incredible ways. Um, I definitely felt like... uh, yeah, it was a great experience because I went in expecting not much and I was blown away and I'm really, really happy to be able to bring this movie into the list of movies that Jared loves. So mm. I had a really great viewing experience. And I also remember that people do worship this film and as I've been consuming people saying that over the years, I've just kind of constantly been rolling my eyes, but I'm really, really happy to be able to join the crowd and say, <laughs> fuck yeah, this movie is awesome. So now um, that Jared's no longer a hipster and it's like, I can like things other people like. Yeah. You know what it was? I think people, maybe before I saw the movie in theaters, people were just like, oh, the long shots, man, so hard to pull off. And I'm just like, yeah, but, but is it a good story? And so I went in kind of just focusing on that. And it, it's worth noting. I don't, it's not that this isn't still impressive, but like the car shot where however many minutes long it is, it's actually, it is multiple shots, but even to get it to sync, to make it look like it was one long shot to me, that's very, very impressive. I don't really oh, yeah. know much about filmmaking, but that seems impressive to me. <laughs> For sure. All right. So let's go into a recap. It's the year 2027. Humankind has been unable to reproduce for over 18 years and the world has been torn apart by resource scarcity, refugee crises, and terrorism. After experiencing a horrific bombing, our protagonist Theo visits his rebellious mentor Jasper, who jokes about a covert organization called the Human Project that is trying to find the cure for human infertility. Theo is kidnapped by a revolutionary group led by his ex-wife, known as the Fish, who pay him to get transfer papers for a girl named Key. Only able to obtain dual transit papers, Theo must accompany Key across the border. After a failed hijacking gets Julian killed, Theo discovers why Key is so special— She's pregnant. When Theo discovers that Julian was killed by her fellow fish and that they're trying to use Key's baby for political ends and instigate a revolution, Theo takes it upon himself to escort her to the human project. Theo takes Key to Jasper's place to hide out, but they are quickly found and Jasper sacrifices himself so Key and Theo can escape. Through one of Jasper's connections, Theo and Key are ushered through a refugee camp where Key goes into labor and gives birth to a baby girl. When the fish attempt to liberate the refugee camp, an all-out war breaks out between them and the army. Inside the camp, the fish find Key and the baby and take her from Theo. Theo eventually recovers Key and the baby from the war zone, and when all see Key's baby in all her majesty, the carnage stops, if only for a moment. Theo and Key get on a boat and row to the rendezvous point where Theo reveals he's been shot. Key decides to name the baby after Theo's lost child, and Theo dies. In the distance, a boat nears end of movie. So there's a lot of great stuff written about this movie. I had a really awesome time going through some of the scholarly texts that people had written. I'm going to be drawing from two articles here. I'm actually curious if they're the same articles that perhaps you've read, Austin. One of them is called Ethics, Aesthetics, and the Future in Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men by Samuel Amago, which came out in Discourse Magazine or Discourse Journal in spring of 2010. 
The other one is called Liquid Cinematography and the Representation of Viral Threats in Alfonso's Coron Children of Men by Julia Escheveria Domingo. The first thing I want to just touch on is the way that the movie, I think, in a pretty overt way parallels the 2006 political climate. So off the top, the National Security Agency of the UK is called Homeland Security, which I think is very deliberately evoking the American Federal Agency. Um, the Which was created after 9-11. Yeah, like 2002. It was new is the operative point. Wasn't it home front security in the UK in World War, during World War II? Oh, I don't know. Anyway. So the media suggests that the UK has been able to avoid being torn apart only through its xenophobic militarism which I'm sure if we remember back to 2006 in the post 9-11 world, there was uh, increased skepticism towards immigrants and stuff like that. Um, Clearly critiquing neoconservative politics that arose post 9-11, the treatment of immigrants is evocative of the Abu Ghraib prison scandal of 2003. And all of this goes to uh, a quote from Quaron, I think that really nails the, hits the nail on the head is what I'm trying to say. That's the phrase. Yes, that is the phrase. So, Quaron mentions that the movie is the anti-Blade Runner, and he's speaking specifically <laughs> about the production design, and this is what he says. He says, The problem was when I started working with the art department, they would send me these amazing designs of futuristic cars and high-tech buildings and gadgets. And I was excited to see all that stuff, but then I said, Okay, guys, thank you, but that's not the film. The film I'm going to do is this, and I'd bring my own file of photographs I'd been putting together through all the years I'd been developing the project. There were photographs from Palestine, Iraq, Northern Ireland, Sri Mm. Lanka, the Balkans, Chernobyl. I said, no, this is the movie we're making. The constant mantra was, we're not creating... We're referencing here. Everything has to have a reference to the state of our times. Mm. I really like, uh, I know sometimes it's referred to as like 15 minutes into the future, or I've even heard it uh, in pitch rooms and pitch meetings when I was working on stuff that was like five minutes into the future types of films, right? Yeah. Where it isn't Blade Runner, super far, high tech, crazy dystopian or utopian technologies but it's just kind of like no this is our world but there's just a little bit of some technological advancements like there's that game that that kid is playing with when he's like controlling it with that little weird glove Mm -hmm. finger thing and obviously the billboards seem to be uh some of them are, are futuristic i mean but generally speaking the technology is pretty current the landscape is pretty contemporary the world feels like our world just modified a tad What's interesting is like if you look at Black Mirror or a lot of sci-fi is like this thematically it's 15 minutes in the future where the episode Nosedive of Black Mirror where everyone's rated it's really obviously commenting on on social media and how we're rated in that way um so really it's not a dystopic look at the future it's a dystopic look at today at the present exactly yeah but like aesthetically it is in the future whereas this one I think is kind of aesthetically mostly in the present mm. And also, I I would say even thematically, like the theme, it's easy to get focused on the idea that like the infertility causing all this thing, but really it's about losing all hope and what it means for society to not have hope. And I'm sure we'll get into that a lot more, but that I think is also uh, reminiscent, not only of 2006 and the the 2000s, but today. Mm. Do you think that there's a sort of like, um, that it's responding to, that Quarren is kind of responding to an anti-natility kind of theory or, or feeling or sentiment in the world. I mean, I, I, just in like a literal sense, What does, sense, that, what you does can that mean, anti-natility? Advanced... Anti-baby. 
Oh, that, I thought that was uh, antinatalism. I guess that's yeah, yeah, the he, same thing. Same, same yeah. thing. <laughs> when, yeah. Well, I don't. When I see this movie, um, so there's this guy, this philosopher named Lee, Lee Edelman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a book called No Future. Anyway, he's an antinatalist, but like in a very sort of theoretical way where he's like, our obsession with the future as embodied by like the figure of the child leads to like everything terrible in the world. So, and, and that very much happens in this movie, but like realistically speaking, Everyone who's ever done something terrible, whether they're Nazis or whoever, is like, you know, doing it for their children. And he sort mm. of deconstructs that and says, it's this figure of the child who's purely, who's like pure and innocent that we must defend at all cost is horrible. What we see in this movie is like the, the, the fishes are, yeah, like for the same reason, there is this literal figure of the child, the figure that they can be, and they want to appropriate it from their own political means and do a lot of shitty things in the process, including killing their friend and trying to, you know, kill other innocent people. It's not really clear if the government wants to like hijack the baby, but I'm sure we can imagine it'd be like equally cynical. Um, so really the movie is about like transporting this baby outside of like the ideological interest of the baby towards like the mother, you know? I think definitely think there's something there. I always kind of thought as the infertility thing as being a bit of a MacGuffin in that it's really just what would happen if humanity had no future or if we resigned all hope, what elements of today would be exacerbated mm-hmm. and how that can function as a little bit of a funhouse mirror for how shitty things are today. Well, yeah. Well, it's taking the, the lack of hope today and then sort of ex- exaggerating it. Right. Like literalizing it to the fact where there is no hope because humanity will die out as soon as the oldest person or the youngest person dies of natural causes. What I think is weird, though, if you like, do you think do you think if a similar thing happened today, would it be really super apocalyptic or would it be like kind of cool? Why? What what are you talking about? (laughs) Kind of cool? Because like nobody's like dying of plague necessarily. And, and as you pointed when we were talking about this earlier, the youngest person's like 18. So like the real problems are as people age, you have no workforce, right? Um, and nobody to take care of the older people, like baby boomers, because there's so many of them are going to have the same problem. But the youngest person's 18. So there's still new people entering the workforce. So like society more or less can function like it has. You don't need to fund schools anymore. Um, you know, you can go to bars and not be bothered by children. I'm just saying like, if you told me that there's no more babies, I mean, I might be a little bit sad, but I'd be like, all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely different than, hey, a tsunami is going to come and wipe us out in uh, five days or something like or, that. Or, yeah, like, or the flu is going to, like, I guess there is reference to a flu. But it's only, like, prolonged. I mean, all acts of posterity would be completely discounted. Nobody would be working towards a family. No one would be working towards, like, a greater memory or anything because even if you were to say i want to be remembered for everything or you know like no one there's not going to be anyone to remember shit yeah this is this is why i think the film is really interesting because in the way that it presents the impending apocalypse let's say well it it depends on how you interpret the apocalypse let's say the impending end right um the way that it presents that is very different than a disaster film it's not like like Alex just said, it's not like there's some sort of outbreak. It's not like there's some sort of meteor that's coming where humanity has to come together to save its survival or something like that. No, no, this is different. This is like a, a slow burn, like almost like entropy, like kind of like a world that we live in. We realize that there is going to be some sort of radical nihilistic extinction to get all Ray Brassier on us, right? And to feel that end is something that kind of does transform how it is that we function, except it compresses that time scale to our lifetime, 
Like our lifetime now, this is it. This is all that matters. We're not building economies for the future. We're not trying to save the planet from global warming um, because we're just going to fucking die off anyway. So don't worry about it because the earth is going to rebalance or something like that. So we don't have any of those long-term worries. But at the same time, it's also not just like we've only got two weeks. Let's just all fuck each other and get drunk and do drugs because tomorrow we die. So it, it is right. this interesting exploration of what happens when you are staring the impending fate in the face, but it isn't as compressed as like the typical disaster film, and it's not as prolonged as like billions of years of heat death staring us in the face. But do you think like in other, like what it imagines is, okay, there's no hope for the future. I could definitely imagine like lots of depression, stuff like that, but would like all the governments of the world collapse? How quickly? I think there were a multitude of things. I do a think flu there, referenced. There are right. Get your flu there vaccine, are, everyone. <laughs> there are various diseases happening. I believe we're meant to believe there was some sort of a climate catastrophe. Well, and then the issue is: is what are you investing in? Right when those things emerge, uh, what is what is the voter base going to invest in? What are they going to care about? What are they going to resp- How are they going to respond? Are they even going to go to vote? Because they're like, fuck it, who cares? Like, what is your responsibility as, um, how does popular sovereignty function if all of your long-term responsibilities are just completely negated? And I think the film kind of has a very pessimistic take on how humans would respond. It's kind of that they would go crazy and they wouldn't invest anymore in their nation states and that governments would somehow then have to respond to this chaos. I don't know that it would work out that way. I kind of think that Alec might be right, that it might be kind of cool, like that everyone might be like, fuck, you know what? We've got one generation. We might as well just make this as rad as we can. We don't have to worry about like that long-term stuff. And we have enough resources now to ride out the next 70 years. So we might as well just make this fucking the raddest next 70 years ever. (laughs) Also, animals are still fine. And possibly on the scale of what, like millions of years, Maybe there will be a new, like, dogs will become sentient and they'll find our <laughs> remains. So, like, maybe there is a posterity. Now, if you really want to get technical about it, everything's going to go away in, like, the heat death of the universe or the big crunch. Yeah. So, to, to your point, Austin, it's like a matter of scale. Like, what is the point of me doing anything today if if all posterity will be erased in billions of years? Well, Alec also <laughs> said earlier today that actually if there weren't any kids, then it would solve the immigration crisis because all these immigrants can solve the the shortage of workforce labor that would come from young people entering the workforce. Yeah. And there's no threat of continuing influx from other people. I mean, so it'd be like a really good anti-xenophobic argument. But I do, I do, I do think we're meant to believe that the anti, the lack of fertility thing happens in conjunction with there being resource shortages. Right. Yeah. I I mean, we're kind of being tongue in cheek. I think we need to take the film at face value. So if we take the film at face value and we assume the chaos that's going on, that does change things because we're kind of like speculating on on how it might be different based on some themes that are presented. But if we take the film on face value, yeah, you're absolutely right. This world in particular is not designed to sustain the stuff that we're talking about because of a variety of factors. If Quaron is just trying to present a landscape that is going to give humanity a reason to be shitty here's how we will be shitty yeah and uh domingo has a really great itemization of the references that he's making so he's uh, she says inside the camp there are islamic references there's an arab march and wall paintings with the word intifada so uh 
that also coincides with uh, veiled allusions to the 1789 revolution. There's a waving French flag in the movie. There's the Christian connotations. The first time we meet Key and we see her belly, it's very evocative of the nativity scene because she's in like a barn. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the Jewish Holocaust suggestions. There's well, the, it's actually the, the Venus. Mikro- there's a Venus painting. Um, it, it's it's So she's in a barn, like Jesus in a barn, but also the way she's like covering her breast and has like her hand, uh, the the birth of Venus by yeah. Bo, Bada, Bada, whatever Bada his Ch- name is. No. Is it about a yeah. yeah, I know. I know what you're Something talking about. Something like that. I see the painting. Well, I was going to get to that later, bro. No, I'm Sorry, kidding. no. I'm kidding. Um, so, Jewish Holocaust suggestions. There's the immigration cop that responds to the coded message: "You're a fascist pig." The camp itself uh, clearly resonates with Nazi concentration camps. And then, as I referenced earlier, the Iraq prison of Abu Ghraib with the hooded mm-hmm. things that they're always putting on top of each other. Um, you guys know that Zizek has a full commentary on the DVD. I did not know that. I I mean I that's crazy. I, I learned that yesterday. Uh, but holy shit! <laughs> yeah. So he he claims in the commentary that in this movie the background is more important than the hero narrative, and I think there's something to this. Nerd writer well, said the same thing in a video essay. Is nerd writer nerd writer just plagiarizing Zizek? <laughs> yeah, I wonder. <laughs> I'm not gonna throw any other YouTubers uh, under the bus. Oh no, <laughs> I just watched the nerd. Uh, FYI, shout out nerd writer has a great video that it's I really just good. watched on this. Wow. I might reference it a couple times, but yeah, it's I this also point. noticed. Well, his argument is the same one that Imago makes in discourse. In the the we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, yeah, I don't think he plagiarizes. I mean, it's, it's just obvious. It's I don't know if it's obvious, but if you spend time analyzing the film these things are going to come up. Well, I'll be honest. I mean, I don't want to sound like a dick, but I think that every background is integral to a film. It's like we talked about with the Scott Pilgrim. It's the canvas, right? You can't ignore those things. Like, even if there's nothing in the background, that's extremely important and valuable to understand. So, yeah, but, but it definitely is more significant here in that there are just more details to be gleaned about this world that you can take that information and get a fuller picture of the logic of the narrative. I love the things that go on in the background in this movie. I mean, first of all, just things like the government giving out antidepressants and suicide pills called quietus, which is branded as you decide when. Mm-hmm. There's uh, newspapers in the blacked out interrogation room windows that show that test tube babies experiments have failed. There's uh, advertisements for prostitutions. There's all of those ads repeatedly throughout the movie that says report all illegal immigrants. There's um, religious cults that incorporate the end of human fertility into a religious framework. This goes more to what I was talking about last week when we talked about Avengers Endgame and how I was talking about how the dystopia that's depicted in that movie is a little bit bare bones in its logic. It's just that, okay, there's rubble and people are sad. And at the time, I brought up Akira as like the greatest post-apocalyptic movie because it doesn't even use exposition necessarily to explain what the new social condition is like. But it's the same here, is they don't actually explain it other than you hear various... You're sad. I'm sorry? They don't... Exp- oh, sorry, Akira, no wrong. No, well, in, in in this movie, they don't explain to you that people are sad, but they explain it through things happening in the background. Like, there are advertisements for antidepressants that the government gives mm. you. Mm. You know, that says a lot more than necessarily having a scene where somebody explains it. And I was just saying in The Avengers, and, and granted, The Avengers is a, is a Disney movie that you know, probably doesn't require this level of detail and world building because it is not trying to make any kind of political statement like Acura or this movie. But I just would have preferred to see 
a more realistic depiction of how people would react to an apocalyptic event like either infertility or someone killing half the population the world would uh, be so fucked yeah like it wouldn't just be, be so like, fucked yeah it, it wouldn't be like oh man i go to group therapy now because i'm scarred it would be like governments it would be like children and men like governments collapse like rise of like terrorism and and then when the population doubled all of a sudden then you'd be double fucked because it's oh, like, yeah. how are we going to feed all these people? Yeah. yeah. And just we imagine all the people who moved on and are like fucking other people and whatnot. And then your ex comes. Oh my back. God. <laughs> how many, how many husbands or wives are going to come home to their, their spouse fucking a new person? Yeah. Or new child how many, how many born? people come back expecting that everything's going to be normal, but their loved one is dead. Like this isn't an end game podcast. We got to, this stop. is the this real, is not we already real did end game. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. We're done. One other detail that I really like in children of men is that the son of the main character's cousin, the art dealer guy, he never says anything, but he's constantly popping pills and he's like distracted by this game that he's playing with mm -hmm. his, mm. and he seems just completely alienated to the world around him. I mean, it's like when we talk about how younger generations today are so glued to screens and have very little social skills. This is like that on crack, especially Mm -hmm. with a kid who is very much a part of the upper class and probably has a very sheltered existence. I mean, he lives in like a high rise where you have to get through two government checkpoints to even get there. But mm. it's little details like that that I think are just that really create a very real, fully realized vision of a world that you can just study and pick apart and learn so much about where we're headed. That's it. I mean, this is the hallmark of a good filmmaker, though, right? I mean, this is they teach you this sort of thing in film school, building out a world. If you read... John Truby's uh, Anatomy of Story. It's the idea of really like fleshing out how this the world that you're building isn't this arbitrary, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if we had a machine that a kid was able to like control with his hands? But no, that serves the purpose in pushing the narrative of the world forward that uh, also fits into the arc of the protagonist and the drama that he or she is caught up in. And that's what that little bit of world building is supposed to do. And then that's what Quaran's world building efforts do do because he's able to show you the despair that comes from this world in which there is no future and how it'll affect different segments of the population. Even the wealthy children, what's going to happen to them? They're spoiled and entitled, but they're just fucking tuned into their screens like kind of zombies or something like that helps flesh out that background that feeds into the story rather than being an arbitrary decision because it's fucking cool and that is totally. good filmmaking that's good storytelling ace filmmaking yes and the the point that the nerd writer makes in his video that i really like is that in addition to the regular background the way the camera works those long tracking shots it'll be on clive owen and then just pan to the side and it's no longer it's like decentering him and then you see like a refugee in a cage or someone with a hood on or you know something blow up where it's kind of using it as a means to bring into focus the things that would otherwise literally be in the background of the film like all the suffering we talked about this in the roma podcast in roma po in roma he uses deep focus to call attention to the greater social context context of what's happening it is interesting how in this movie he has this free-floating camera that tends to linger on the background characters or background events or background mm -hmm. elements rather than following clive owen the whole time whereas in roma he does it by just having the background uh, showing a lot of depth and mm -hmm. having the entire depth in focus and then in itumama tambien sorry i'm a gringo something similar happens but it's not done as visually it's that we hear voiceover 
that periodically tells narratives of people that only briefly interact with our horny protagonists, and our horny protagonists are basically children of elitists. Mm -hmm. And so we see also how we're focusing on either privileged individuals, such as the upper-class family in Roma, or even... I wouldn't say that Clive Owen's character is privileged, but he's certainly not a refugee. He's not he's put, like being a, put in a He's probably cage. like a middle or upper-class bureaucrat. He has a cousin who's like a hotshot. Yeah, right. like he's, he's fine. Right, mm. and they're just using various cinematic techniques to bring greater awareness to the things that are being pushed into the background. I think God Quaron is so good. Mm. So yeah. good. Mm-hmm. I got to go back and watch Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, that's a good fucking movie, too. I mean, I had to watch them all because I have a partner who very much likes Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter's tight, man. I know. Um, all right, so let's talk about the references to art. I think this is what you were talking about that the Nerd Rider video is primarily about. Uh, well, it's about the the focus thing, and it does bring up the art thing. And this is not from the Nerd Rider, although I guess there's an overlap of what I'm about to say with what he says. Well, first of all, just to to like set it up, there is there there's the the birth of Venus, uh, which is when she's like in the barn, sort of like covering herself. Um, that is just like a very famous painting. But in the it's his cousin, right? Yeah, Theo's cousin. He mentions La Pieta. Yeah, so 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 they're in the it's called like the Ark of Art or something like that. It is preserving art. So first there if anyone's seen our Banksy video, there's uh Kissing Coppers, which is a, a Banksy graffiti mm, and like yeah. they they have the cutout wall, it's in the background. Um and then there is the statue, is that David? It is the David. Yeah, uh but more importantly when they're eating, there's just this giant uh Picasso's Guernica. And there's a, a few other things. Oh, and so when he's standing in front of the David, he's saying like, oh, couldn't have saved La Pieta, um, which is a painting of, I think, Mary holding her dead son, Jesus. But what's interesting is it often gets, well, well, okay. So, so my overall point is that I think it's making a point that like, so in this sort of like xenophobic context, there's a sense of like preserving British identity, preserving British civilization and stuff like that. And of course, whenever anybody brings something up this way in like Western civilization, it's usually like art, like look at Guernica, like this is a testament to the amazingness of European culture. Uh, But then it has all these sort of doubles in actual life. That's almost to suggest like in people's sort of like, like this, the way they want to preserve art ossifies it in a way that like, a lot of these things were made like, like Guernica was made after like a terrible like bombing of civilians by by Germany during the Spanish Civil War. And it's like this shit is happening around us, which is like the source of art. So it's almost like art or the source of art exists today, but you're so busy like holding yourself up in this fucking like arc mansion thing that you're totally blind to it. So the examples are La Pieta. There's a, also a famous photograph called the Kosovo Pieta, which is, uh, I think, uh, during one of the civil wars in the Balkans, I think a Kosovo woman is holding her dead son who's shot by the Serbians or something like that. But then in the sort of refugee war camp scene, um, there's a woman who's holding her son that both emulates La Pieta and the Kosovo uh, Pieta. Then with Guernica, they're eating in front of it. That, again, is about like, bombers destroying a lot of the civilians in this uh, uh, Basque city. And then that similar sort of war situation is happening. People are dying in the refugee camp. You could say Kissing Coppers is like Kissing Coppers arguably is about, you know, like Banksy loves to talk about the police state and militarism and stuff like that. And this is very much like uh, 
uh, you know, there's the the cop Sid or whatever who's pretty much an asshole, and you know, yeah. fascist pig uh, is the the code word. And then literally, the birth of Venus is replicated in in key, like in that posture. So it's almost like this is the stuff of art, but you're too again too busy jerking off like in a in a mansion. <laughs> yeah. So this is essential to both Zizek and Amago, who have been quoting throughout this podcast their theses, and what they say is that this statement that is being used by having art in this very sterile environment and then having it recontextualized by having actual suffering people mm-hmm. uh, reenact it, is that essentially robbed from its initial initial cultural context, the art becomes meaningless, mm-hmm. but the camera brings back the real world context and it, in a sense it repoliticizes the art. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, so especially with the kissing coppers thing, having that in a very sterile government-sponsored art exhibit is, like, it seems to lose its meaning when, in fact, you could say that the initial meaning of that piece is some sort of statement against militarization, and yet it's being held in a art museum that requires three checkpoints to get through. Yeah, and also I was reading, uh, I was just briefly reading about this, but the, the Birth of Venus... I guess it was a big uh, deal that he painted this because it was during the time where it was like not cool to not paint Christian things. Mm. So essentially uh, this person painted a bunch of stuff from like quote unquote pagan mythology. And obviously religion's a, a big theme here where there's lots of different kinds of religion. You know, they use like the sort of Virgin Mary as like an archetype there. But, you know, we but see they it. underplay it. They trivialize it, which I think is very. Do they? Yeah, there's that part where Key says, I'm a virgin, not just fucking with you. Right. But it's still very, like, people have compared still the story to, like, Mary and Joseph, like, shepherding, you know, Jesus. I I, I don't really know enough about the Bible to say this, but people have in earnest, like, yeah, she jokes about it, but it's also kind of about, you know, like, the birth of this miracle that will save humanity and, like, the the adults who come around to, like, protect it. Yeah, I think it's pretty heavy-handed when I watch it, I mean, maybe I'm just sensitive to those themes, but he clearly seems to be like a Joseph type and she's clearly a Virgin Mary type, even though she's not a virgin, who cares? Um, Vir- Mary probably wasn't a virgin either. Sorry, Catholics. Um, God so, cares, Austin. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but it is, you know, the birth of the son, they're born in kind of this grimy environment, like he was born in a manger. Um, it is the, 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 the baby that will save the world, you know, that's a messianic type of figure. It's very heavy handed to me that, that, that this child and that this mother are the center of the story, that they need to be brought out of this environment that is clearly threatening to them. Just like the reason that, uh, Mary and Joseph had to flee because they were running from their threat to have that their baby was going to be killed. I mean, kind of the opposite. Uh, maybe we don't know what the threat is going to be, but we do know that, um, that the likelihood that this child is going to be delivered to safe arms in the hands of the government is is uh, not high. So um, th- it just seems that there are a lot of similar analogous. Uh, but but I, I so yes, but I think in context of like the birth of Venus, the the context of which that art, in the way that I don't remember too many examples, but Jasper's he says. God, it's at the end of T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. It's like a phrase. I think it's Hindu or Vedic or, or something like that. Or whatever it is. Yeah. So Tintith what I'm saying is like, yeah. like, whereas the birth of Venus, that guy was like, I'm going to, I'm going to paint some weird, not, not weird, but like, I'm going to like fucking paint 
pagan shit that the church is going to be mad at, it like injects the sort of non-Christian stuff into a very kind of Christian narrative. Um, so this is to your earlier point about kind of taking the sterilized version of it and like recontextualizing it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the long takes. So there is the six minute shot. Say what? I said it's fake news. <laughs> yeah, why uh, well, not do, why all do people them. get so excited about a long take? Is it just because well, normal filmmakers what, like the... don't do it as often? And so it's kind of viewed as like this really special thing. Like I used to wank off it's about hard. that shit too. I mean, look, like a lot of old Hollywood epic cinema was about, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, all those David Lean movies. It was all about the majesty of cinema was the fact that we could organize to where we can have a shot where there's a little war going on in the fucking background and you have to have a thousand extras to pull it off. And that's how we bring worlds to life. That doesn't happen anymore because it's too expensive to get 2000 extras or whatever. So I think the long take is kind of that new. Here's how cinema flexes, how majestic and amazing it can be. And I think in this movie in particular, it really does aid the point of the movie. So if the movie is trying to suggest that this that the dystopia is now the long, realistic takes only further solidify our immersion into a world that is a perverse rendition of the now. And so not only that, but man, during that car segment, I was like on the edge of my seat, man. Mm. Like I couldn't breathe for a while, like especially when. Clive Owen like kicks the door and gets the guy off the bike and Chiwetel Ejiofor kills the two cops. He's like, get back in the fucking car. <laughs> I was like on the edge of my seat. So I think it really works, first of all. And like I said, it's it's extremely impressive. And I'm one of those people who very much defends Tom Cruise for scaling a whole building and almost killing himself to do stunts in a Mission Impossible. So I do think that realism and that kind of labor and that effort to make something more fluid, more realistic, really does pay off. I mean, I do believe that. Well, and the other sort of word or phrase that I've seen used is like documentary style, where it's almost like the camera or the cameraman is in the style of like an actual war documentary. So like- Yeah, blood on the lens. Yeah, and so I was also reading, uh, the source of this is Wikipedia, so please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the- the editor or the someone the someone the that was not supposed to happen and they had to be like no 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 you need to leave this in like that's the whole point uh so they they convinced Quaron to 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 leave that in but yeah just like the way the camera's like constantly like looking behind it it's almost like a cameraman would act in like an actual war situation and for a movie that came out during the time of the Iraq war like that's very important mhm the average shot length of this movie is 15 seconds which is very high for a movie oh i did not wow yeah, so there's – let me just go through some of the long takes. There's the six-minute shot during the uprising in the refugee camp. There's the one-minute-long intro shot of him getting coffee, and then he exits the coffee shop, and he witnesses the bombing. And then there's the one in the car, which is actually three shots matched digitally, but still impressive and extremely effective. And once again, I think that it aids the overall message of the movie, and it makes it really, really captivating to watch. So to me, this is a total win on all sides. Well, was, I was watching it with uh, Jacob and I didn't I didn't read anything about the movie beforehand. And when I saw it, I didn't know any of this. But uh, in the middle of that car chase scene, I was like, wait, Jacob, is this all the same take? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, like I enjoy I enjoy those types of cinematic flourishes, right? Like, I mean, People freaked out about the opening of Gravity. It's like this nine-minute opening shot in there, you know, or whatever it was. And so they love they love to kind of 
heap praise upon him for his long takes. But beyond that, the thing that's amazing for me about somebody who comes out of the theater, the reason that I like the long take is, even though I don't know this is necessarily true, I think there's something really powerful about the cut. Um, actually, the film that we have in production right now, I, I think I've told you guys about this, but I'm producing a, a cinematic adaptation of a, a best-selling book, but that it is made by a guy who's an expert with montage filmmaking. So he loves to theorize the cut, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it was Godard that says, like, the cut is the lie. The shot is the truth. The cut is the lie. And there's something interesting about that. He doesn't mean that as a, as a judgment necessarily. He means that there's something unique going on when you cut a frame. And... Mm -hmm. And, and what is that that's going on? You cut away from something that you have built up in the person's mind, expectations and themes and characters and emotions and uh, other elements, and then you've cut away from that, and now your imagination is still lingering in that, but now you're looking at a different shot. You know, just think of a simple shot, reverse shot. Now you're you're still remembering what was going on in that other shot, but now you're sort of like mapping that onto, layering that onto this next shot. The thing that's really lovely about not using cuts is that you get the sort of flowering of performance or the flowering of background without being as forced. But I think there's there's a little bit of um, a mistake because I think some people think that, oh, this is more truthful. Like this is a nor like a normative statement, like some sort of value judgment. But it's not because you're still being told where to look. The frame is still like lasering your focus in particular areas. Like when you're you get taken off of Clive Owen and turned to the background. But the thing that I do appreciate about that, without going into like all these value judgments about it's a lie or it's truthful or whatever, is that in theater, uh, you get to see people perform without interruption, right? And that's what you get in a long take. You get to see performances. And I love the performance art. And Quaran seems to be someone that actors would really be drawn to because it allows that to come to life a little bit more. You get to see the, the emotion and the drama build over a longer period of time rather than relying on cutting around so that you can just get the performance that you want, which is sometimes a cheap ploy that directors use because they don't have the skills to get the performance from the actors or they don't have the creativity to maneuver the camera to get everything that they want to convey. So they have to kind of cut around it, which is kind of a lazy way of filmmaking. So there's actually something really powerful about what it takes to, you know, do the blocking. And um, I don't know if they do rehearsals or if it's just improv. I, I don't know what his process is, but there's something really important about that. They had to have rehearsed. I mean, there's probably like hundreds of thousands of dollars burning a second. I mean, <laughs> well, but, but sometimes it's just rehearsing blocking and sometimes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you just run through the blocking rather than like, because you don't want to like, some directors don't want the actors to blow their wad, so to speak, on the performance. And it's like, hey, save it for when we're rolling because we might do mm. six or 12 or 15 takes or whatever. Um, so it might have just been walking. I don't know what his process is, but I'd be curious to find out. Have I brought up that Russian movie? It's all one take. Russian yeah. arc. Yeah. And there, there's a, if anyone listens to the podcast Heavyweight, the host, it's kind of a weird episode. The co the host of the just becomes obsessed with this one mistake in it at one point. So it's through this museum in Russia 
and like all the shit's going on and it's like just to be, it's a two-hour movie that's only one take yeah literally one take and they only had like one day like it's not like they redid it a few times to pre- yeah the pre-production was thousands of times longer than production yeah and, and specifically they had like one day where the museum was like fine we'll shut down so you can film this mm-hmm. and so they they had to do it but at the very end of the movie there's like a, a band playing and the violinist just like gets up turns around and looks at the camera and that's mm-hmm. the only mistake in the whole movie but this interviewer like talked to the editor, talked to the director, and they're all like, "What? No, I never noticed that." <laughs> oh man, I didn't. I've tried to watch that movie. Actually, Jacob and I tried to watch it. We got motion sick. Oh god! Because the lens is so wide, so that to make sure they get everything yeah. in frame, because you can only do it once. I think they did the whole thing like twice. But anyway, back to this movie. A couple things I want to uh, also mention. So we haven't talked about the Pink Floyd pig. Oh yeah, from the animals. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Nigel and Theo are talking in the Ministry of Art section that we've been talking about a lot, and a Pink Floyd pig floats outside. Well, it's just a regular pig. Oh, it's but, a pig. But it looks like the cover of the Animals, uh, the album called Animals. Right, which is also loosely based on Animal Farm. Mm-hmm. And I think, so Amago says that it adds this emblematic depth to the film's criticism of contemporary class systems and the exclusionary cultural practices that sustain them, which is why there's that reference to Animal Farm and to Pink Floyd while the art guy is in the is in the foreground. Well, I also think you could say that, you know, Animal Farm is about how the Russian Revolution betrayed itself, like the pigs, mm-hmm. the pigs start to look like the evil people at the end. And same thing with, like, the fishes. They have, like, this noble goal of, like, you know, helping people. And at the end, they're trying to, like, kill people to kidnap a baby. (laughs) Well, not only that, but the art itself inside the ministry is betraying its own mission. Right. Well, Because it's there to, I guess, legitimize the current government where, in fact— Where no one can see it. (laughs) Where no one can see it, but but also the art represents everything that is against— what that government represents right like you have an anti-war painting by like a fascist that is being housed by a fascist government exactly it was a guernica exactly yeah yeah, exactly so also the, um there's similar significance to music so domingo points out that the 1969 song king crimson's plays when we enter the ministry of arts each line of the lyrics perfectly matches the surrounding setting the central line in the court of the crimson king the Red King of the song being a metaphor for the devil is accompanied by the climactic image, which is the power station, the seat of the Ministry of Arts with the floating pig above it. Mm. Uh, so the song announces that Theo is essentially about to enter the court of the devil, which is interesting. And then there's one other that I don't really know a lot about the Beatles, but when Michael Caine is euthanizing his wife, the Goodbye Ruby Tuesday by the Beatles plays. That's not the Beatles. I'm sorry. Who is it? I don't know, but it's bothering me. Austin, Austin, do you know? Who? What? Goodbye, Ruby Tuesday. That's not the Beatles? No. Can someone Google this? You're I'm, saying it is I'm the Googling Beatles? I'm Googling it right now. I think it is the Beatles, dude. Who else would it be? Fucking anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> is it just that you want it to be anybody else because you hate the Beatles? <laughs> it's, it's the, the Rolling, Rolling Stones. Stones. Fuck me. Is there a cover of Goodbye, Ruby Tuesday, too, in there? No. I, I think There's it might be, be a cover. Um. So, Sorry. Goodbye, Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones is in there. What is that song about? I don't know. Oh. I didn't have time to look it up. There, this soundtrack is actually great. Uh, I didn't notice it, but when I was reading about it, there's a song, the band called The Libertines. Uh, I really like one of their albums, but um, it's Arbeat Macht Frey, which is the, that's the name of the song, but also the words, uh, Works make you, Makes You Free Outside of Auschwitz. 
Um, that really loud song that Michael Caine plays till I forget why is a Aphex Twin song, uh, which is awesome. Mm. At one point, uh, Radiohead plays, I think it's um, Living in a Glass House. And uh, God, there was another one. But yeah, the soundtrack the, was fucking awesome. And then it, that's like juxtaposed with all this like very churchy music. Yeah, if anyone can attribute any significance to either Goodbye Ruby Tuesday or any of those other tunes, send us an email at movies at wisecrack.co <laughs> or give us a voicemail at 213-534-8807. Two more things I want to get into before we go into the mailbag. Of course, if you guys want to bring anything up as well. Um, so Alec mentioned earlier the influence of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and Amago in his Really, I mean, I've quoted him a bunch of times. I really recommend you guys try to check out his article. But he says, The basic premise of Children of Men, which rests on the dreary contradiction of being alive during the last days of human existence, is indeed a recurring theme in Eliot's poem. The Wasteland describes a world inhabited by the lackluster living who exist in a kind of half-life. So then he quotes the poem, I was neither living nor dead. He who was living is now dead. We who were living are now dying with a little patience. So... That's like a millennial like rallying cry right there. <laughs> that that's like practically that Burger King commercial. <laughs> oh God. Hashtag feel your way. If you guys don't know what I'm talking about, Google it, but not if you're having a bad day. I don't want to fuck when up. When you have a day, day where there's a little room for it to get a little bit worse. Yeah, yeah Google that. <laughs> um I wanted to also conclude with uh, Amago's thesis for the piece. He says that the key to understanding children of men lies in its purposeful connection between aesthetics and ethics. The Art of Arc sequence I mentioned earlier, which we've been talking a lot about, can be interpreted metonymically as a manifesto in which Quaron alternately indicts the global political status quo while envisioning a brave new future for the film medium. And I've been thinking a lot about that quote, although I think he's definitely right for this film. I really hope that, I mean, and Alec and I have talked about this before, but this idea of equating aesthetics with ethics is something that I am really very, very against and hope that it's not something that's universally adopted, although it even kind of is in our current situation, but, you know. Meh. Meh, whatever. <laughs> um, all right. Anything else you guys want to bring up? No, I think that's, this movie's dope. It's movie's dope. dope. All right. We're going to go into the mailbag. If you guys want to send us a comment, question, concern, whatever you want, 213-534-8807 or 21ElfGut07. We got a lot of great ones. I think, well, Alec was definitely here for They Live. We got another They Live voicemail from Alex. Go, Alex. Hi, my name is Alec. Um, I was just listening to your guys' podcast where you were talking about They Live as well as The Matrix, and you talked about how the red pill... Uh, hurt the real red pill hurts, and about how your and about how the glasses also hurt, and it just really struck me whenever you also brought up how in the Matrix um, that, that whenever you were you were talking, I can't remember the exact quote, but you had said that a, a small amount of philosophy will turn you into a non-believer, and a large amount will turn you back. It reminded me of whenever I took my big red pill. I was wanting to become a minister for a long time. And then I started reading into books that turned me towards atheism. And then after then, I turned into, I started to, I was dreading myself because I took that red pill and realized God was dead. And then realized later on that God was dead, but the Bible still had things that I enjoyed in it about storytelling and 
um, the way that humans should grow. And then I look at other books and other religious texts, and I grew from that. Um, so then that brought me to the thought process, and I'm wondering if you guys agree with this. Um, but you talked about how the glasses hurt, and then there's always joy at the end, and you always bring up the red jelly bean as opposed to the red pill. Do you think that maybe the pills hurt at first, but then the immediate, then the relief later on comes on? As in, like, the pill sucks, but then whenever you come down off of it, it actually brings you joy. Uh, just wondering what you think, what you think about that. Thank you. I, I think I disagreed with you a little bit because I think in large, I, I think it depends on the situation. A lot of times I think the red pill tastes so good, right? Like I think sometimes you have to be aligned now, obviously. And I, I want to sort of hear it cause I think Austin has a similar situation when your whole life is built off of something like being a part of a faith or like becoming a minister, I think then it can hurt and then start to feel good. But yeah, I mean, I, uh, I don't really know that many, but I've certainly read about it. But like ex-Mormons have a community and I'm sure it's like very painful for them to leave. Oh, yeah. Um, but then they probably find a community and then it starts to feel pretty good. Um, I have a weird note about like the turning away and then coming back to it. I feel like that's I like outside of faith or anything like that. It's almost like weird hipster logic in my head where like I've talked about this before with Fight Club. I saw Fight Club as like a teenager and fucking loved it. And then I was like went to college is like fight club sucks fuck this movie everyone likes this and now as i get older i'm like yeah fight club's cool <laughs> like you sort of like come back i don't know it's almost like a hegelian kind of thing but uh austin what do you think depends because you can have a radical red pilled experience that is just purely joyous like the one that i had when i converted to christianity it mm. wasn't a painful thing it was um wow i'm finally seeing the world in a in a way that makes sense to me. It gave me something to give me a platform. Like, I think this is one of the things that you see, you know, where a lot of, let's say, ethno-nationalists or economic nationalists are using the red pill. Because for them, it's kind of like, no, I'm actually seeing the world now clearly for the first time in their mind, right? It mm -hmm. isn't necessarily a fall from a comfortable position. It's, wow, I'm actually, I'm given a comfortable position, even if that comfortable position is one that is covering over the real traumas that is a sort of like imaginary fabrication or imaginary fabrication. So right. it can be that. And that's what happens sometimes when you convert into a religion. Now, when you convert out of a religion, that can still be considered a, quote, red pill experience because it's still illumination. It's still waking you up into a different world. It's just coming at it from a different perspective. Instead of gaining something, you're perceived to be losing something. And then that's where you can find out that, well, maybe even though I did lose something, then in the long run, I did actually gain something even greater, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and that's the experience that the caller is talking about that I do understand. And so I think that there's an ambivalence in how we understand what we mean by the red pill. You know, I mean, this, this isn't anything new either. This goes back to Plato's allegory of the cave. The experience of getting out of the cave and going into the sunlight and seeing the sun isn't like, oh, cool, I see now. No, it's the first time in your life that you've had sunlight hit your eyeballs. It's going to fucking hurt. You know? Yeah. Um, and it's like when you're in a crowded movie theater and then you go outside and you're like, ah, I can't fucking see anything, you know? It's that on steroids. Imagine never having seen light. And it's painful. Um, and then not only that, it's also still painful when you realize, damn, now I got to go back and I see my loved ones who are are lost and they're kind of still tied against their uh, against the wall in their chains. So yeah. that isn't enjoyable either. But then at the same time, if you start to feel nourished and fed by this connection with 
the one or with the forms or whatever it is that you feel that you're being nourished by, then it can start to be enjoyable. So um, this is something that I think goes to the heart of what it means to kind of be torn between the infinite that we sense and the finitude that we are eminently perceptive of. Let me defend my red pill as jelly bean thing because I think there's a difference. And the difference is, is that a lot of time red pilling happens very privately these days. A lot of times people are still in their communities and families, but because so many people spend one-on-one -on -one time with their computer on the internet, people have this awakening of perspective that doesn't necessarily translate into their everyday life. People just become, you know, I mean, the, the negative stereotype is like angry internet edgelords where they've now found a community in the internet that doesn't mm. require that they spout this publicly and excommunicate their family. So this would be more like if in the allegory of the cave, he never actually left the cave, but someone showed him a picture of the sun and he was able to keep that to himself. Gave him like a, a periscope to kind of like... Exactly. And, and I would argue in that case, since he's not actually looking at the sun and he's not actually feeling the hard heat rays, it would actually probably feel good rather than it actually hurting him. I don't know. Like I think for people who start to like question their faith and to be honest... Even like, you know, people who are maybe like on the internet being like, oh, maybe like I'm not straight. Maybe I like the same sex or something. It's like, then you just feel like you're hiding something. Well, that particular example is very hard. It's harder to keep private than, oh, I believe that, you know, women should do this or whatever. You well, know, no, like but like if you're like in a, a Mormon community or like Orthodox Jewish or, or, or anything and, you know, you're surrounded by all these like very faith abiding people and you in the back of your head are like oh, actually, like, I don't know, like, you know, I think it becomes harder to do all the rituals and like... Yeah, because those rituals and who you decide to have a relationship with is a relatively public-facing thing. But if you're being red-pilled in the literal sense of, like, men's rights activists or whatever... You're doing that privately. Yeah. If you're saying, like, oh, yeah, I actually do believe that there's, like, a hegemonic uh, whatever academic establishment that purports or that proposes certain ideas and inhibits others, that's not something that really has a public facing right th element until, to until it. thanksgiving <laughs> until thanksgiving if you can keep your shit together the other thing i'll say to what alex said and uh like zizek i will repeat the same joke many times but what he's <laughs> what he's referring to in terms of how he went from religiosity to atheism back to religiosity this is my um what i call the weekend at bernie's issue which is that you know, Weekend Bernie's, if you guys haven't seen it, it's a very funny comedy from the 80s. And the premise is that these guys go to an awesome party that their boss is throwing on the beach, the most beautiful women and everything. And it's an amazing party. But then Bernie dies and they have to make a decision that if we tell everyone that Bernie is dead, then there's going to be chaos. The cops are going to come and the party's going to end. But if we just puppeteer him and pretend that he's alive, the party can keep going. And I think basically Bernie is God in this metaphor and that like if we tell everybody that he's dead, yeah, there's going to be a lot of despair. There's going to be a lot of aimlessness. But if we just pretend that he's alive, then people can still find value in these narratives. So Alex is the guy wheeling around Bernie in the office chair. You keep wheeling around Bernie, Alex. <laughs> um, all right. Let's do one more voicemail. So uh, we got to do one on Avengers Endgame. Most of the voicemails that we got this week were about Avengers. And so, by the way, Austin, have you seen it? Yes, I have. Oh, okay, cool. So this is from Gabe. Go, Gabe. Hey, Wisecrack. This is Gabe from Michigan. I was wondering if you guys could dive a little bit into the time travel mechanics more from Endgame, because it's not super obvious to me why it is that 
Loki getting freed doesn't have an effect on the present MCU, but Cap going back in time and not coming back does. And if you could get a little bit into that, I would much appreciate it. Well, for the answer to that question, you got to go to Disney+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so if I remember correctly, Loki gets the Tesseract and disappears. And so the question is, well, then why do they need to go back in time to the 70s to get the Tesseract? Because in theory, Loki's already taken it away. I mean, maybe... No, no, the 70s is before when Loki had it. No, I know. But because Loki gets the Tesseract, then Iron Man has to go to the 70s where the Tesseract was before that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So perhaps his question is... And why doesn't that create... I guess the one thing we're supposed to assume is that, okay, well, Loki already stole the Tesseract at the end of Thor Ragnarok... So in the same way that um, yeah. Thanos got it back from him at the beginning of Infinity War, something similar would just happen? No, th this didn't make a lot of sense to me either. The only thing I could think of is like when Iron Man is going back and returning all the Infinity uh, Stones to the right place. You mean Captain America? Yes. He maybe fixed that somehow. I don't. But yeah, it it honestly doesn't make sense. And to be honest, in my head, I was like, oh, is this going to be a weird spinoff? Well, does it have something to do with when the Doctor Strange lady explains that, you know, once you take one of these things, it creates a separate timeline? I mean, we could assume that, yes, when Loki did that, it created a separate timeline. But we're just supposed to assume that that's one of the timelines that Captain America went back and fixed. And then decided to just get Yeah, old. maybe. Or again, maybe it's a, a Disney Plus show. <laughs> uh, it's a way for them to uh, justify doing something completely outside of like the new kind of storyline they're doing. All yeah. right. Since we answered that one quickly, we're going to do one more from Trey. Go, Trey. Hey, Wisecrack. My name is Trey Soto. I'm from Southern California. Um, I'm a huge comic book nerd, and I just listened to a podcast on Endgame. Great stuff. I absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, regarding uh, uh, Natasha's sacrifice, I honestly found it, was it what I wanted? No, not at all. But honestly, I found it rather interesting, considering in most films, it's usually like the male has to make a sacrifice for whatever reason, uh, whether it's his choice or not, but they usually make that choice. And I think for me to see uh, a female do it was very was very new and very interesting. Um, and did I want it to happen? Like I said, no. But honestly, I just, I honestly like the fact that, that the female could make the sacrifice that nobody else could, especially when it's in a dire situation. And I wanted to see what you guys thought about that. I think that's something you rarely see, like the, the female making a sacrifice for the male. Um, that's just my personal take on it. Uh, I don't know what you guys thought, but, you know, I, I don't know if I want to talk about it. <laughs> but, yeah, I uh, love this stuff. Thanks, Trey. So my thoughts on this are, one, I think, well, if if Lux was basically saying how it would have been more interesting if Hawkeye sacrificed himself because he realizes that, like, oh, the fact that I went to Japan and started killing all of these guys isn't okay, yeah. and so I should sac I should end up dying because, you know, I made a mistake, no matter how hor horrific the loss that I experienced was. As far as Natasha ending, uh, one thing that I just don't understand is that isn't it that you have to sacrifice the thing you love most and they the, love each other, but doesn't but he do love his they, wife? He loves his wife. And then Natasha's whole romance arc is with the Hulk. At least I, right? Really? Yeah. You, we, I haven't seen enough. Sorry. We're, I, I have not brought the wisecrack Marvel experts to this podcast. <laughs> they can probably explain that more. Um, as far as a female doing it, um, I don't know. 
doesn't really strike me in any particular way, to be honest. Um, but I've never honestly been that big of a fan of Scarlett Johansson's character in general. Sorry, uh, Trey, I don't think I'm being very insightful to your answer. I, but, I agree, um, though, about the when I was watching it and I knew that it was about giving up the thing that you love the most and then it was a battle between which one of them I was confused. I was kind of like, wait a second, he's got his wife. I thought that that's his, his, his kids. Wouldn't his kids be the thing he loves the most? I mean, that's clearly the thing that he's ultimately fighting for. So I was like, so how does that work? Like, how is he giving up? This is no offense well, is the, to is the losing somebody that, that's important to you, but that's not the thing that you love the most, right? Well, that's why. So that's why, that Than, that's why the narcissists? Thanos one was so important because he had to kill the daughter that he loved the most, not just any old daughter. <laughs> As if, right. as if they're quantifiably exchangeable like that. But still, right? So I, I, it didn't quite make sense to me. Um, and I don't know. I, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. All right, we're going to go into the mailbag. Send us an email at movies at wisecrack.co if you have any comments, questions, whatever you want. This one is from Steven. He says, hey, Wisecrack crew. He says, I just read that Quentin Tarantino has recut The Hateful Eight as a four-part Netflix miniseries. Does that undercut Tarantino's thesis in Inglorious Bastards on the power of cinema, or is Tarantino acknowledging that Netflix is the current form of cinema? He's recut films before for Death Proof and Kill Bill, but as a bit of a Luddite who shoots and releases on film, collects vinyl, and prefers VHS over Netflix, this stream seems like a bit of a strange move for him. Uh, I'm in the minority that thoroughly enjoyed The Hateful Eight, and I'm excited to see the new cut, but it still feels a bit wrong. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts from Steven. So what do you, what do you think, Austin? Yeah, I don't know. I, I saw this email, and I thought it was interesting because Tarantino has been so resistant publicly to embrace the digital revolution, right? Um, mm-hmm. I wonder, but then at the same time, when that Netflix money comes flowing your way it's hard to say no right yeah there's that (laughs) so i don't know i don't know really what to think about it i don't know if this somehow shifts whether or not his his view about the transformative power of film i mean film per se is now shifting to just the transformative power of story because he has said that when he stops making film he's just going to start writing books because he's going to keep because his scripts are written as books anyway. He writes like these three hundred page novels and then somehow whittles them down to something that's shootable. So I don't know. Maybe he's just kind of getting relatively comfortable with the idea that um, that there are different media that he can utilize to tell his stories. And even though he doesn't love the idea of digital, um, he maybe he he would be like staunchly against shooting on digital still, but that hey fuck it's it's gonna be streamed on a digital platform anyway. So um, even though Hateful Eight was still shot in film, it's okay if it's screened on a digital platform, which is different. I think the thing for him comes down again to the purity of shooting on film, developing film. Uh, the richness that comes from the filmmaking process and from the actual uh, celluloid. And I don't think it's so much that he just cannot stand distribution via digital platforms, even though I think he has a little bit of resistance to that. So I think that's probably how we kind of explain that apparent contradiction. But I do think it's an interesting question to ask if he, for some reason, had written Inglorious Bastards today, would he have written it differently? Would he have less faith in the supremacy of cinema as, you know, the big cultural motivator today? And I would argue that he probably does. And I'll also say that there's been some kind of weird, um, 
kind of weird bending of the knee to the digital giants from people who have been the most resistant yeah. protectors of cinema. So recently, when Apple was revealing its streaming service, uh, none other than Steven Spielberg, who literally a week earlier was criticizing streaming services as eroding the effectiveness of cinema or eroding the theater, theater experience. And here he is bending the knee to Tim Cook and promoting their service, I have a, I have a probably real, for a huge check, not unlike Tarantino. What were you going to say? I have a really weird and fucked up comparison, but this is like how colonialism worked. Where, oh, God. <laughs> no, no, no. So like, you know, you're Britain, you're invading like India or something. And the people who'd resist you the most are the ones that you're going to pay off by, like, making them governor of some district mm. and, like, with a nice salary. So, like, for Netflix to come in and be like, oh, who are our biggest resistors? We're going to give them the most amount of money so they shut the fuck up. Yeah. it's. I mean, yeah, it was effective. <laughs> yeah. I, it's actually out now, that, that um, recut of The Hateful Eight. And it's four hours long, four one-hour episodes. I have not watched it yet. And, um... Yeah, I mean, maybe Tarantino is just looking himself in the mirror and says, man, even I have to adapt. I'd be very interested to see what his new movie is like. Sergio Leone uh, once said, I believe in three things, the transformative power of cinema, Marxism, and dynamite. But now (laughs) I only believe in one thing, dynamite. Dynamite. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. I actually want to do one more email before we... uh, This one is from Mark. Mark says, in the Endgame episode, the discussion of how audiences don't really want to be surprised and just want a nice, straightforward ending was brought up. Indeed, lately, there have been some strong examples of subverting expectations not landing. But the solution to that should not be ceasing to subvert expectations, but learning from the dissatisfaction audiences have and understanding how to do it correctly. What Mass Effect 3 or The Last Jedi or Game of Thrones Season 8 Episode 3 teach us is that while the adage of the audience doesn't know what they want, it's the job of the creator to give it to them is true, it's also true that the audiences know what they do not want. An audience does not want substitution. Subverting expectations works if the thing being subverted has already happened so we don't feel like we're missing out. Example, the Doc Ock fight cut short at the end of Spider-Verse or Captain's Elevator scene in Endgame or is being replaced by something better, such as Hulk pummeling Loki in Avengers instead of an almost certainly less entertaining memorable fight scene, or when it turns out Robert Patrick is the villain in T2 and Arnold is the good guy this time. So audiences want that, but they do not want something that was set up slash alluded to, not delivered, and then substituted with something else. Because even if that something else works within the context of the world, it does not work emotionally. Now, I haven't won any BAFTAs yet or Critics' Choice Awards, but that seems to me how we audiences feel about it. We'd like to hear your thoughts. Cheers from Slovenia. Slovenia. So how to Slavoj. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, what, I, I don't remember when we were talking about this. Maybe it was on a podcast. The thing about Game of Thrones is you're, or, or even like the event, you're essentially people are pouring in dozens of hours investing into this thing. And then when you subvert an expectation, then they're like, what the fuck? Whereas the like liberating thing about film is like you're spending 90 minutes, two hours, whatever. And if you subvert what you just learned in those two hours, it's like, oh, fine, whatever. So I not that I disagree with you, but I think I think the serialization of everything makes everything hard to subvert because then you're like subverting for Game of Thrones, literally years and years and years of, of buildup or, or sort of investment. I don't know. I just I, I I think what he's mentioning 
is interesting, but I also am a very strong believer in tone and that if you're a master of manipulating tone, you can get away with anything. Yeah. And uh, a good example of, so I, I was recently watching, rewatching one of my favorite shows, Vice Principals. Oh yeah. Uh, and I think Jody Hill is a master. He's <laughs> so good. Um, but the last three episodes of season one of Vice Principals escalate so sharply and in such an interesting way and just watching the last three episodes of Game of Thrones, there's no escalation. And I think that, you know, if you just do it cleverly... Now, granted, there's a lot less at stake with Vice Principles. No one was literally, like, basing their identities off it like they do Mass Effect, the, Last Jedi, and Game of Thrones. It's the first season, too. Like, West Westworld also had a twist, but it's like, all right, I've spent, like... Yeah, I think you get away more with subverting expectations in the first season as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not actually too keen on the Mass Effect 3 thing, Um I think that The Last Jedi people would have been less pissed if the movie was just better, you know, just cinematically. I mean, I think, like, probably. And as far as Game of Thrones, I'm also not an expert. But I think that Mark is hitting on something that's interesting and very apt. But I wouldn't say that that is universal because I still think that there is a possibility to end something while subverting expectations. But it's just very hard to pull off. Like, remember when, da I mean, we were too young, but, like, the show Dallas, the one of the biggest sitcoms ever. Who shot JR or something? Yeah, and it ended with everything just being a dream. <laughs> if that, it, now, fan culture wasn't as intense as it was That's back still a then. shitty ending. That's a super shitty ending, and people would have been so pissed. But I'm trying to think of an ending that really subverts expectations. I mean, once again, if Breaking Bad had ended at the end of season four, I think that would have been a masterpiece ending. When you just you find out that oh Walter is that bad that he poisoned a child, yeah, and that would subvert expectations while still giving a pretty solid ending. Anyway, you have anything to say about that, Austin? Nope. Don't give a shit about Game of Thrones and stuff like that. All no. right, cool. No. <laughs> I oh I haven't seen it, so all of this expectation and disappointment that people are currently experiencing right now isn't something I'm dealing with because I am not invested in it, but. Yeah, but I just think it's funny. Like, uh, that's all I'll say. I just think it's interesting to see how it is that people nowadays, even more than previously, not that people have never had expectations for their creators, but now there's like an entitlement that when we get oh, yeah. invested, that we have a right to be angry with whoever the content creator is, right? That like somehow the video or the film or the podcast or whatever didn't live up to the expectation. Like... In one sense, I get it, but then in another sense, it's kind of like it is really interesting that there is this relationship between a huge platform like Disney who can release a product on a trailer and get a bunch of shit because Will Smith blue looks weird. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, well, we're going to scramble and we're going to redo – or like the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer comes out and everyone's like, fuck that. That looks terrible. And they're like – they announce a couple days later, hey, we're going to change a little bit of the visuals. I think it's just an interesting world to live in, and I'm not sure that I've wrapped my head around it entirely. But it there are some tensions there that I still need to think through and doesn't make me feel comfortable, that's for sure. The Sonic example is great because, I mean, it did look dumb. And, like, no one was, like, shit. Like, there was just a lot of memes. Nobody was, like sending death threats to the animator <laughs> hey you don't yeah. know man people are people not that are i know intense. please god if anyone <laughs> oh i've got some weird internet stories to tell you about people that are obsessed with sonic that have like torn up game stops because sonic's arms were blue 
<laughs> well, the interesting thing is this. So, like, normally uh, they screen a film and they'll do test screenings, right? I wonder if these really early trailers are kind of just a mass test screening, right? So they, I think they're going they're doing it on purpose. Yeah. They're going to start standardizing this like, hey, first look for you Internet fans. What do you think before we spend another 40 million? Yeah, yeah. and then it won't say that. They won't say that they're doing that. They're just going to release it, engage audience expectation because it'll be more natural. And then if people are like, oh, my God, the the new whatever remake from Disney, the live action remake looks freaking amazing. Then they're going to be like, OK, cool, we can go with it. But then if they get a shit, a, a shit ton of like criticism then they're gonna be like hey maybe we can tweak some things but that's cool because we barely started production you know or post-production or whatever i think people are still figuring it out because i don't think that studios or anyone has really figured out that if the if a strong internet backlash is indicative of a small but vocal minority or if it actually is the general populace i think the general populace all thinks sonic is weird (laughs) in that one it seems to be the case because that one just seems like such an obvious whiff but uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. We got to get moving. Uh, where can we find you guys on the internet? Austin. You can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. You can hit me up on Insta, AUS underscore H A Y. Um, I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn with my homie Troy. Uh, so you can check that shit out. And then I also do a, another film podcast called I Dig This Movie with a director friend of mine from London. Find us on iTunes and websites and just Google us. And Alec. I am on Twitter at WisecrackAlec. I also recently started a podcast called The Order of Things. You can find that on my Twitter by searching it. But uh, I interview philosophers. I did one recently about like pessimism and antinatalism. That's kind of interesting if you're into this uh, kind of children of men stuff. But yeah, check it out. Really good podcast, by the way. Good shit. Oh, thank you. I know you listen to it. Yeah, man. He's going to get off in like nine and listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Peace, everybody.